Welcome. My name's Kevin Featherstone, and I'm the director of the Hellenic Observatory here at the London School of Economics. Today's event is co-hosted by the LSE and the National Bank of Greece. We're very pleased to have this partnership as we've collaborated very effectively on a number of previous occasions. We meet, of course, uh, in the middle of a pandemic with a tragic loss of life with our public health systems struggling to cope. There are many human tragedies in this uh, story. But today our focus is on the after effects of the pandemic, the legacy in terms of our economies and societies. The economic forecasts of course suggest that the economic impact of the pandemic will be of an unprecedented uh, scale. And indeed, it's unusual in terms of its type. It is a negative demand shock and a supply shock at the same time. Governments are facing uh, exploding deficits and rising levels of public debt. At the same time, there are demands for governments around the world to save jobs and protect businesses. Governments seem to be shifting policies in unprecedented ways. United States President Donald Trump has agreed a $2 trillion package uh, with the US uh, Congress. Angela Merkel in Germany has said that the uh, level of public expenditure there needs to rise uh, faster and higher than at any time since the Second World War. So it looks as if we are shifting to a period of a new government activism with planning and resource uh, management. So is this a paradigm shift in terms of our uh, government policies and indeed expectations of what government uh, should do? And who pays for this level of borrowing uh, afterwards? When do we pay? Many of these issues, of course, are faced acutely in Greece. The OECD, the IMF and the EU Commission each forecast that the economic impact on Greece will be greater than for any other European uh, country. With three bailouts, of course, uh, the European Union has struggled to manage uh, the Greek uh, crisis. Even before the pandemic, the financial constraints on Greek governments were very severe. So how can Greece recover from this uh, crisis? Is Greece's recovery indeed dependent on what the European Union does? In our discussion today, we want to combine both breadth at the European level and the depth, looking at the particular case of Greece. How can the European Union handle the crisis? And what are the prospects uh, for a country which economically has at least until recently been the Eurozone's uh, weakest? Uh, link. Now we have a great panel of speakers to guide us uh, through this uh, complex set of issues and let me introduce you to them in the sequence that they will be speaking. Paul de Grau is a professor of European political economy in the European Institute here at the LSE. He's one of the leading economists focusing on the economics of the Eurozone. He's a fellow of the Centre for European Policy Studies in Brussels and also a fellow at the Centre for, for Economic Performance here in London.
Syrian Zankov is a former Deputy Prime Minister and former Minister of Finance in Bulgaria in the years 2009 to 2013. In other words, he was Minister at the time of the last financial crisis. He's held senior positions in the World Bank and he's a past chairman of the Euro European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. He's also a colleague here at the LSE, a member of the Financial Markets Group. Miranda Safar has worked at the IMF and indeed was a member of its executive board again uh, during the years of the previous financial uh, crisis. Before that, she served as the chief economic advisor to the Greek prime minister at the beginning of the 1990s. She has much professional international experience. She's worked in the uh, city of London. Currently, the, she's the CEO of a financial consultancy in Athens and a senior scholar at the Center for Governance and Innovation. Panasokoglu is professor at the Athens University of Economics and Business and one of Greece's most respected academic economists. Between 2012 and 2014, he was chair of the Council of Economic Advisors uh, in Greece. All told, I estimate he must have served at least four different Greek prime ministers. He certainly represented Greece in a number of EU-level uh, fora. It, so it's a great panel, and they will be making uh, presentations uh, for us as we go along. But also, as you're watching this uh, Zoom broadcast, or if you're watching via live stream on Facebook, we very much welcome your questions. Simply, at any time in this broadcast, uh, tell us who you are, where you're writing from, and uh, give us your question. Perhaps if you have uh, a relevant affiliation, uh, mention that to us as well. We look forward to your uh, questions, I repeat, at any time during this uh, broadcast. You can also follow us on Twitter. The hashtag is LSECOVID19. Uh, and we look forward to uh, those comments as, we as well. As I say, many of you are watching via Zoom, no doubt in many different parts of the world. Uh, if your friends have been unable to join us because of the um, popularity of this event, uh, tell them they can watch the live stream on Facebook. Uh, this broadcast will also be available as a podcast uh, after uh, today. Uh, so let us uh, begin. Each speaker will speak for about 10 minutes. After each speaker has uh, finished, then I'll ask a few questions uh, at the end, and then I'll select as many questions as we can uh, from you, uh, the audience. So we have a great uh, set of issues to uh, confront here. As I say, combining both the European level uh, and uh, the particular case of Greece. So to begin, let me ask my colleague, Paul de Grau, uh, to speak to us. Paul. Thank you very much, Kevin. It's a great pleasure for me to be here and to participate in this uh, debate, which is, I think, of great importance. I will concentrate on um, the, the picture of the Eurozone. Right? I have no particular expertise about Greece, but I, I want to set the stage uh, by um, focusing on the implications for the Eurozone of this uh, incredible drama that we experience today. 
So, and as Kevin already explained, uh, this is a combination of supply and demand shocks, right? Suddenly the supply comes to a standstill in many countries, and this creates then uh, a reduction of, of uh, production and therefore also income. And as a result, demand also collapses. And we get this particular interaction between negative supply and demand shocks that risk creating a deflationary spiral uh, of a magnitude that we have not seen very often in history, right? Uh, um, where, where suddenly the, the risk exists that the whole economy is imploding. Um, this then may, in addition, create uh, further domino effects on, on the financial sector and the banks that um, will be confronted with, with the fact that many of the loans that have been made in the part, past are non-performing and creating uh, the risk of a banking crisis. And all this forces governments to intervene, to, to stop this deflationary spiral, and they are doing this um, in, in, with um, all kinds of measures like um, unemployment, uh, temporary unemployment, um, finance of, of companies and all that. And, and clearly the implication of this is an upshot and an increase in the budget deficits in all these countries. But the particularity now for the Eurozone is that the impact of all these things is, is going to be quite different. Some countries like Germany, for example, seem to experience a less pronounced decline and therefore also a less uh, pronounced increase in their deficit and debt levels. And given that they already start from a much lower level, they will come out here from this uh, crisis in a very different way from countries like uh, Greece, Italy and Spain that have a higher initial debt level and are also more affected by uh, the crisis. And therefore, the, the, the risk is, is, is really that if we, if we go on treating this as a national problem, that um, the, the, the impact of this crisis will be uh, leading to a permanent legacy of unsustainable government debt levels in a number of countries. Um, and, and that is something that we have to confront. We, we, we will be faced with a legacy where some countries have accumulated um, such a high level of debt that uh, they may be forced for years, if not decades, into, again, austerity, just coming out of austerity uh, for the last decade, being forced again into austerity. And I don't think the Eurozone can afford uh, pushing countries in a new round of austerity. Um, um, and this certainly would lead to terrible political backlash in many countries where the, um, where the situation already is, is weak. So the question then that arises, how, how can we solve this, right? How can we make sure that this temporary shock, right? Because the, the pandemic is a temporary phenomenon, leads to a permanent effect on debt levels in the Eurozone where we have very divergent effects on these debt levels. And how can we deal with it? The first best situation would be that... Um, we find an agreement to mutualize uh, these debt accumulations. But uh, as you know, uh, we have been trying hard at the EU level to achieve that kind of debt mutualization. But unfortunately, um, there is um, apparently no appetite, especially in the north of Europe, to come forward. Right uh, there, um, the, the, the narrative still is in a number of countries, or we have been uh, virtuous countries we have accumulated reserves 
And then you have these sinful countries in the South that have failed to do so. So now they will be punished. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but this is the underlying feeling in many countries that makes it possible for politicians in these countries to say, no, 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 we will not um, go into um, a, debt, a, a joint issue of, of uh, bonds so as to mutualize uh, this debt. So it, it looks like um, this will lead uh, nowhere. Um, we might or we certainly will have some kind of uh, credit mechanisms uh, through the ESM, but this will not solve the problem because uh, this is just um, equivalent to allowing countries that are hit very deeply in the South to accumulate more debt. What is then the second best approach? Well, here's my proposal, and that is that uh, ECB actually should monetize the deficits arising from the corona crisis. So the corona crisis is leading to an upsurge in budget deficits, and, and now is the time for the ECB to monetize. Um, why is that necessary? You, you may say, well, the ECB has already announced this uh, new pandemic um, purchase program of seven, 750 billion. So the, the ECB is willing to intervene in the secondary markets, right? buying bonds of uh, countries that are under pressure. Um, but this is just solving a liquidity issue, right? I think it's, 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 it's a very good initiative. I'm not criticizing this initiative. Um, this is certainly necessary, but it's not going to be sufficient because it does not deal with the debt accumulation, right? It still leaves the debt levels that um, will increase as a result of this corona uh, pandemic uh, unaffected. And as a result, when this is over, the same countries will be confronted with unsustainable debt levels. And the issue then will be Will the ECB at that time still be ready to intervene in secondary markets and make sure that these countries are not hit by a new sovereign debt crisis? Because that is almost certain to happen um, once the pandemic is over and, and, and the legacy of this pandemic crisis uh, on debt levels is there, then um, we can forecast with great certainty that is a new sovereign debt crisis will arise when investors fear or get even in panic and start selling the bonds of countries that have seen their debt accumulated fastest. And then we would get into a second sovereign debt crisis. And the only way to avoid this is to act now, make sure that these deficits that are now accumulating can be financed by monetary means so as to avoid a permanent increase in uh, debt levels in uh, countries of the Eurozone. Of course, as you know, um, there is a legal issue. Um, assist for Boten, it's not permitted. The treaty says um, monetary finances, financing is not permitted. My response is with Cicero, Salus Populi Suprema Lex. Cicero, a great senator and, and also philosopher, um, realized more than 2,000 years ago that when you are experiencing an existential crisis, you have to be willing to set aside, aside rules that you have imposed on yourself, right? Because these rules may serve you in normal times, but can become extremely counterproductive when we experience an existential crisis. And then we should be willing to set these self-imposed rules aside. By the way, these, these rules are not God-given 
were not written in stone, right? It, the the a monetary union um, is not conditioned on a rule that says budget deficit cannot be financed by monetary means. This is something we have agreed to do in normal times, but in, in abnormal times, we should set that aside. And um, of course, it will be difficult. I have no illusions. Um, it will be difficult to convince, um, especially economists in the north of Europe, to go in that direction. Um, so I'm a little bit relying on clever lawyers that certainly can find a, a way out uh, finding clever um, techniques so as to avoid um, being hit by this um, uh, this, this um, inability to, to finance deficits by monetary means. My favorite uh, way to do it would be to say, uh, well, countries can issue perpetual bonds at zero interest rate. This is part um, in, on the balance sheet of commercial banks for some time, and then this is sold to the ECB in the secondary market, so that at least technically, legally, um, one could circumvent the no monetary financing rule. Now, this being said, I'm also aware that there are some watchdogs there, in particular in Karlsruhe, that will be looking very carefully whether all this is possible. Um, but, but again, I think it's time to think outside the box, right, and to set aside dogmas um, that, as I said before, may be appropriate in normal times. But um, when we are facing these existential problems, we should be willing to set aside for the greater benefit of uh, the people in, in Europe. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Let's move straight to Simeon. Uh, thank you, Kevin. Uh, it was already mentioned that uh, this crisis is very different from previous uh, crises. Um, one feature uh, that is often uh, talked about is that it's both a demand crisis, a lot of people are losing their jobs, very fast pace uh, job losses, uh, but also because of the lockdown, uh, the majority of businesses in many countries, or certainly a large share in other countries, uh, are also not able to uh, produce. And we have not seen this combination for many, many decades, not, certainly not the last, um, uh, the last crisis. But another feature that I think is equally important uh, that differentiates uh, this crisis from uh, the previous ones is that it simultaneously is happening all around the world. So it's a global crisis, but happening at the same time everywhere. So there are lockdowns in Europe, which uh, we know and experience, I'm participating in this from Washington DC, which is under lockdown for the last uh, two months. Uh, but I work a lot with developing countries and uh, from Senegal to Kuwait to Peru uh, uh, to countries around, uh, around uh, Asia, everybody currently is in some form of uh, lockdown, which means that uh, trade flows have, uh, have collapsed completely. We already have some data for uh, March and some early data from uh, April, so if you look at some of the tradable goods that uh, we economists normally look at, like cars or car parts, for example, trading these in the last two months has uh, collapsed to about 15% of what it was at the same time last year. In a, if you want to put it differently, 85% collapse relative to, uh, uh, to last year. And if you also look at uh, uh, trading vessels, the vessels that uh, bring goods uh, around the, the world, 
they're saying that in the last month, they're at about one-third capacity. So in other words, on average, two-thirds of global trade has disappeared, has collapsed uh, uh, all of a sudden. The reason that this is important is that during the previous crisis, the Eurozone crisis, as we uh, call it in uh, Europe, some countries were very successful. Uh, Germany was one such country and around Germany, Central and Eastern Europe to reorient its trade from the depressed uh, demand of Europe towards Asia. So China in particular at the time of uh, the Eurozone crisis was actually growing quite fast and was pulling a lot of other economies uh, with it. So you could reorient your production if you are exporting oriented uh, business. This at the moment at least is not possible. So everybody is under uh, lockdown, which uh, makes uh, resolving this crisis a lot more difficult and would require massively more resources, fiscal resources, fiscal space that Paul was talking about than uh, previous, uh, previous uh, crisis. Uh, so that's my first point. I have two more points. Uh, the second point that also differentiates this crisis from the previous ones is that in the previous crisis, with some delay in Europe, much faster here in the United States uh, and also in, uh, in China, I should say, government said, well, we need some fiscal um, uh, stimulus, so we need to pump money into the uh, economy. But at the time, because it was mostly a demand issue, so people didn't have enough resources, the optimal uh, way to do so, to pump money in the economy, was large infrastructure projects. So suddenly everybody looked around and said, where are the roads we need to build or rebuild? What are the airports? What are the metro um, stations and so on? And that was thought to be the most effective ways to put money into the economy. And by and large, it, uh, it worked. Because of what I mentioned in my first point, both supply and demand have uh, uh, collapsed around the world. Now you need the opposite strategy. You need to figure out very quick ways to uh, give resources, to give liquidity to millions and tens and actually hundreds of millions of firms around the world in every sector, from cafes to restaurants to gyms to um, uh, exporting manufacturing uh, uh, enterprises. This is much more difficult to do because programs have to not just spend a lot, but they also simultaneously have to reach a lot of businesses at the same time. And we suddenly find out that with a few exceptions of uh, very advanced uh, uh, economies. We actually don't know how to do this. Like you can put the tax uh, system in reverse, so to speak, rather than gathering uh, taxes from uh, businesses, you can give them money. But actually in the vast majority of countries around the world, that doesn't work because not every company actually pays taxes. In fact, the informal sector, uh, as we know in developing economies, usually is more than half of uh, of total economic activity. So suddenly we find ourselves in this crisis, even if we have the fiscal space, which often we don't have, um, but even if we could find the money and the government was willing to spend it, we actually don't have the mechanisms. We don't have easily uh, available mechanisms to do it. So this is a big question mark, not just for economists, uh, but for all of us who have been excited about new technologies uh, uh, reaching, uh, reaching people. Now we need these technologies to very rapidly disperse resources, both to businesses, but also actually to, house, uh, uh, to households. A third uh, and final point on my side is that if we are successful, 
it doesn't seem that many countries at the moment are so, so, so successful. Kevin, you mentioned that in the United States, already two and a half trillion, the last, the fifth package was another 500 uh, billion. So it's two and a half trillion by now, uh, which is 15% uh, of GDP to put it in perspective that the US is spending. Um, so this, uh, this money is rapidly being uh, uh, being depleted. In fact, Congress had to be asked a second and then a third time to spend this money. And this is done through the tax system. But if you try this, as other countries have tried, even middle-income countries through the tax system, I mentioned they find out they cannot approach many businesses. They just don't have the, either technology or the organization. Hopefully they do very soon. And then in a few months, we're going to run into another issue. Hopefully the, the, the health crisis by then is uh, largely uh, over and we're in the recovery phase, the economic recovery uh, phase. Then a number of businesses who have benefited from this um, uh, credit extension program, so uh, temporary relief from uh, rental payments or uh, payments to employees and so on, would have much larger debt. So just as Paul was talking about countries coming out with this or sovereign governments coming out of this crisis with a lot of debt, so will many businesses. And debt levels, I, uh, I presume, that are too high for them to deal with on their own, even if the economy picked up from next year and uh, was doing well for a number of years, which is highly uncertain, by the way. So the third and final point that I want to make is that governments very soon start need as we think, we economists think of uh, debt restructuring, so debt forgiveness uh, or debt write-offs for sovereigns or some form of uh, debt relief. So governments around the world and actually the European uh, Union itself needs to think of uh, debt restructuring for the corporate sector. This has not been done for a very, very, very long time. We need to go back to not the Second World War, but even the First World War in some countries where that, that was... Um, uh, that was the case, but at the time, of course, businesses were much fewer than we have um, uh, now. So another huge uh, challenge. And let me, Kevin, just finish with a note on, uh, on Greece. As we discussed this, we already noted that uh, Greece has essentially just come out of a painful um, uh, process of, uh, of uh, austerity. The economy was just starting to pick up and now it's hit with this uh, sudden shock. One thing that had not picked up, however, was disintermediation by the banking sector. The banking sector in Greece was so uh, uh, affected by the uh, previous crisis that uh, Greek businesses, if we look at the statistics, actually were not getting much uh, money, much credit to begin with, even uh, last year. Uh, with this uh, external shock, it is even more uh, of an amplified problem for Greece how to finance the real sector so we don't end up uh, victors or successfully coming out of the uh, health crisis and then suddenly find out that our business sector is uh, uh, beyond its, uh, its possible survival. I will stop here, Kevin. Thank you, Simon, very much indeed. Miranda. So the first point I wanted to raise is that uh, all EU member states face the same storm but they are not all in the same boat. Southern European countries are more dependent on tourism and have less fiscal space because of very high debt levels. Several countries, in fact, have accumulated levels of debt 
not seen since World War II, enabled by near zero interest rates. Within the EU, the temporary repeal of state aid rules could cause severe economic and market dislocations in the absence of risk sharing. Uh, last year, we saw a disconnect between fundamental, economic fundamentals and markets. Markets were booming, both stock and bond markets were booming as the economy was decelerating. Um, this disconnect has come to an abrupt end uh, in February when the pandemic hit. Uh, the global bond rally, which had driven GGB yields to all-time lows last year, ended in mid-February with an abrupt widening in credit spreads. And the Greek stock market, which was above the top performers globally last year, with the Athens Stock Exchange up nearly 50%, lost all its gains within four months. The April 2020 update of the IMF's World Economic Outlook was very downbeat, and the Commission has just come up with very similar projections yesterday. Uh, Greece's growth in 2020 is projected at minus 10%, uh, with only a recovery of about 5% next year. And the general government balance will swing from a small surplus last year to a very large deficit this year, uh, which will continue into 2021. Uh, as a result, the public debt level, which started uh, last year with 179% uh, of GDP, is projected to jump to about 200% of GDP this year. If you look at the economic sentiment index published by Eurostat, that had risen to all-time highs in January, but then fell off a cliff as the pandemic hit in March and April. Ample global liquidity provides support to equity and to bond markets. Um, both ECB and national governments in the EU have launched unprecedented uh, monetary and fiscal stimulus. The ECB launched the 750 billion pandemic emergency purchase program in mid-March, which together with the QE that had restarted late last year with asset purchases of 240 billion has been increased uh, by a third to 360 billion in 2020. So, all in all, altogether, the ECB is set to provide liquidity of more than a trillion euros. Of course, as Paul said, the interventions by, by the ECB can buy time by keeping interest rates low, but restoring growth depends on government policies via fiscal stimulus and growth-oriented reforms. And also, the ECB interventions cannot address um, the huge increase in public debts. The Eurogroup has so far approved three support schemes, but has yet to formulate a consistent crisis response. Uh, one such facility is uh, uh, loans from the ESM, up to 2% of the recipient country's GDP, with very little conditionality. Uh, also, EIB, European Investment Bank, guarantees and loans to businesses. And the new program, SURE, which is a temporary program via loans to support employment. 
Um, Greece can draw up to 8 billion, 4% of its GDP from these programs. But notice that these are either existing programs or a temporary program by the Commission, sure, which is certainly no substitute for the common unemployment insurance that was under discussion before the pandemic started. An EU recovery fund is under discussion based on the EU multi-annual fiscal framework, meaning the EU budget. Uh, but this could be close to what uh, France had originally supported, proposed in 2018 as part of a plan to deepen economic and monetary union. But before the pandemic, it had been downgraded to a proposed budgetary instrument for competitiveness and convergence, the BICC, of a mere 12.9 billion over seven years, which would be clearly insufficient to tackle this pandemic. So um, the head of the commission has been talking about a facility of about a trillion, which remains to be seen if it can be agreed at European level. Uh, Greece still has access to bond markets, even though the spread has widened considerably since February, but it was able to launch uh, a two billion uh, seven-year bond uh, last month, so it retains access to capital markets. Even before the pandemic started, Greece was facing three big challenges. One is a very large investment gap, where the gross uh, fixed investment to GDP ratio, which amounts to 20% in the euro area, is down to only 11% in Greece throughout the decade of the crisis. The second issue was a low competitiveness ranking, both through the World Bank and the World Economic Forum assessments, and a very high level of public debt, amounting to 334 billion or 179% of GDP at the end of last year, and um, very high non-performing exposures in the banks, amounting to 41% of total loans, way above the rest of the EU average. So this is the picture that shows you uh, the drop in fixed investment since the onset of the global financial crisis. And since 2010, when the crisis, the debt crisis started in Greece, uh, gross fixed investment has fallen well below the rate of depreciation. So uh, Greece needs about 100 billion in investment in the next eight years just to restore the pre-crisis capital stock. It has been eating up its capital stock. This chart shows that uh, Greece's ranking in uh, the World Bank's Doing Business report uh, had improved considerably in 2014 when the procedure for starting a new company was simplified. But then the ranking started dropping again because not many new initiatives were undertaken, whereas other countries got ahead of Greece. So now Greece ranks 79th globally. Public debt is higher now than after the so-called PSI was concluded in 2012, both in absolute terms and as a percent of GDP. The PSI had uh, uh, written off uh, 106 billion uh, worth of Greek debt, so it was the largest debt write-down in history. 
And still today, Greece finds itself heavily indebted again. Uh, I believe that uh, to find the fiscal space, Greece needs to take a close look at expenditures. Greece spends 16% of its GDP on pensions, by far the highest percent in the EU. There was a 2016 reform to cut pensions for new retirees that left the old pensions up to 40% above the new pensioners. In addition to that, the IMF estimates that Greece spent 18 billion in the seven-year period 2012 to 18, subsidizing loss-making public sector companies. So keeping these zombie companies alive locks scarce resources into unproductive uses. So I think because need, Greece also needs to cut tax rates that are extremely high, um, the government should take a close look at expenditure and see where cuts could be made. Thank you, I will stop here. Sure, the time, yes. Uh, thank you, Miranda, very much indeed. Uh, you've outlined some of the stark dilemmas uh, faced uh, by uh, the Greek government. Panas Sokoglu. First of all, thank you very much for the invitation to this very interesting event. If you are the last speaker in an event, naturally, many people have already covered some of the stuff you would, uh, you would like to concentrate. Um, let me start from this point that um, Paul mentioned there. This is a, a demand and supply crisis at the same time. Uh, it is interesting to see, let's say, the mechanism, first of all, in order to see why the crisis may be more severe in the case of Greece than in other European countries. From the supply side, what we have is that uh, by government order, we have the closing of the activities of several sectors of the economy hotels, restaurants, cultural activities, sports activities, etc., etc. At the same time, however, because of the lockdown, we have, uh, uh, let's say, disruption of uh, all these production chains that we have. Uh, this affects primarily manufacturing. And as a result, we have, let's say, a very severe crisis from that side as well. However, there are demand factors as well. Uh, reducing activity for such a long time means, let's say, lower wages, lower salaries, uh, therefore lower demand. Uh, in the medium term, there are fears as to whether people will participate in activities like tourism, transportation, or uh, recreation, and so on. All this uncertainty that has been created affects demand investment. And uh, finally, because of this lower economic activity, this means, uh, as uh, Simon mentioned uh, before, that we have, let's say, lower international trade uh, uh, and so on. Now, as a result, we have that in all, in all countries we have lower uh, output levels. Why in Greece it is more serious? It is because of the structure of, um, of GDP. Uh, in Greece, we have, let's say, far more reliance on tourism, something that everybody is mentioning. However, there are other sectors as well that have a higher share in Greece's GDP than other European countries. Uh, like uh, uh, restaurants, uh, bars, etc., etc. There is uh, all these cultural activities that I mentioned before. Also, international trade, because Greece is a big player in international transportation, and also uh, retail trade. 
this is the reason that, uh, according to the estimates of all international organizations, Greece is going to be affected by the crisis more than any other European country. Now, uh, I have some reservation about the precise estimates that uh, all these international organizations are presenting. And actually, all these international organizations are very careful to state that uh, these are scenarios that depend on epidemiological scenarios. Uh, nobody really knows as to whether the, this coronavirus will survive the warm summer weather uh, in the Mediterranean, as to whether we will have, let's say, a second round of lockdowns in autumn, when we will have an efficient drug, and especially when we will have a vaccine. Now, because we have all this uh, collapse in economic activity, governments all over the globe are trying to do, let's say, more or less the same things. The first thing is that they are trying to keep the productive um, net of the society intact. Therefore, they are supporting firms not to avoid, let's say, massive bankruptcies, increases in unemployment, and so on. The second thing that they are doing is that they are uh, supporting the purchasing power of the population so that we do not have a complete uh, collapse in demand. And indirectly, what they are trying to do is they are trying to uh, reduce the risks for the banking sector of the countries. This was a uh, point by Simeon, and I absolutely agree uh, with him that this is, let's say, something that is especially true in the case of Greece, where the banking sector was just recovering from the previous crisis. Now, of course, all the countries are doing the same things. However, not all of them have the same ability to do this, uh, to undertake these policies. Precisely because of the high debt that was mentioned by Miranda before, Greece's fiscal space is quite limited in comparison to several other countries. And this is one of the factors that is contributing to uh, this lower GDP growth rate, I mean, to higher recession for next year that is mentioned by several international organizations. Regarding debt, uh, I absolutely agree with all these analysis that uh, Paul mentioned at the beginning. Greece is in a situation right now that uh, is not as bad as in several other European countries. Why is it so? Because of uh, the debt restructuring that we had in the past, Greece's needs for the immediate future for uh, repayment of uh, our debt, and especially for interest payments, is quite low. Secondly, uh, for uh, some reason that is related to the end of uh, uh, the economic adjustment programs that we had there, and we received, let's say, some extra money from our partners, cash buffers of, the, of Greece are higher than what one would normally anticipate. Uh, this is not the only reason. Uh, Greece reapproached the markets in uh, recent years, and as a result, whenever conditions were favorable, we were issuing debt, even though it was not absolutely necessary to do so because of our needs. If you combine this with uh, the resources that uh, we are likely to receive from uh, European sources, either uh, from the European Investment Bank or uh, through the program of SUR or all these other things that Miranda mentioned before. The situation, if it is not truly catastrophic in terms of economic terms, pandemic terms and as a consequence economic terms, it may be manageable, although there is no question that the day after it will be say, a very difficult day. A very difficult day with a mountain of debt, both from the side of the state, I do not mean that Greece's debt will not increase, of course, this. And it will be in the private sector as well. Therefore, definitely we have to think about all these things again. The second area where uh, we must uh, start thinking about is uh, 
you know, as a result of the crisis, uh, we had the relaxation of state aid rules by the European Commission. This is very good uh, because, as I mentioned before, firms must survive the crisis so that we do not have, let's say, a true collapse of total economic activity. However, not all countries have equal ability to support uh, their firms. As a result, there is a question of what about competition policy, whether we have, let's say, after the end of the crisis, that the firms in uh, the periphery countries will be, let's say, in a far weaker position than their, center, uh, than their competitors in the center. And as a result, we may have, let's say, another crisis burning from this point of view. Now, regarding Greece, I was asked uh, also by Kevin to give, let's say, some, an account, some account of uh, the social consequences of the crisis, and I'm going to say about this. There's no question that we will have, let's say, lower living standards in the sense that, uh, you know, with uh, a crisis like the one that uh, is outlined by the international organization, there's no question that we will have lower incomes in the population. Regarding inequality, it is not absolutely sure whether inequality will increase or not. The first victim of any kind of a crisis like this is that profits are collapsing and profits are, uh, head, are directly, let's say, primarily to the top end of the distribution. Also, regarding um, poverty with a fixed line, there is no question that we will have, let's say, a further increase this year. Poverty in relative terms, however, may not, things may not be dramatic and uh, may not be dramatic because during the economic adjustment program years, we had a uh, some changes in social policy in Greece that focused quite a lot on policies that were direct to the bottom of the distribution. Introduction of minimum income guarantee schemes, several other policies that were making benefits, income or property related and so on. Finally, I would like to mention that uh, there is quite a lot of uh, discussion at the moment in Greece about the uh, health system. The focus of the debate is on the underfunding of uh, our health system, and definitely there is a point to be made there. The cuts that were made to the public health services, public health spending during the crisis year were substantially higher than the uh, decline in GDP. However, in my opinion, this is probably not the most important problem that we are facing with our health system. Health system in Greece is concentrated primarily around hospitals. If you compare, let's say, Greece's spending patterns with the European, average European patterns, we are spending far more on hospitals and medical instruments, primarily medicines, and far less in uh, primary care, in preventive medicine, and in long-term care. And I'm a bit pessimistic there because uh, all the so-called fight against the coronavirus was given to hospitals, but after the crisis, we may have, let's say, an increase in spending on our health system. However, it may once again concentrate in hospitals and there will be an opportunity missed for restructuring our health system. I'd better stop here. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Pana. Uh, very helpful uh, presentations. I wonder if I could just start off a discussion by asking a few questions. Uh, questions. And I wonder if we begin at the European level, and uh, let me try to combine a question uh, for Paul and uh, Simeon. Um, Paul, I guess with your strategy, your second best option of monetizing government deficits, uh, isn't there a lingering question as to whether 
European donors can rely on national governments to spend the money wisely, uh, effectively. And it's kind of related to the question I had with uh, Simeon. Simeon has been proposing uh, quite uh, an extensive uh, set of credit to the private uh, sector in order to uh, get out of the, the crisis. Isn't there also an underlying question uh, with your strategy of the accountability that would come uh, from this? Uh, the public purse giving such large amounts of money to private sector actors, uh, what should governments expect in terms of uh, accountability? I'll come to a, a question uh, for both Miranda and Panos uh, in a moment, but Paul, do you want to respond to that first? Yes, uh, thank you, Kevin. That's a very pertinent question. Um, let me say the following. Um, most of the increase in the government budget deficits now during this pandemic is the result of automatic stabilizers. Right? The fact that on the revenue side, there was a huge decline of tax revenues, right? If producers stop producing, they generate no revenue, therefore um, no taxes are earned. So that's the first effect, right? The other effect has to do with the spending side that, for example, temporary unemployment schemes in many countries are the result also of legislation that automatically forces governments to increase spending because millions of people are now on temporary unemployment. So m most of the deficits, at least in Europe, and that may be a difference with the US, but most of the deficits that are now shooting up in Europe are the result of these automatic stabilizers. And there, therefore, I think your question, although a pertinent question, is not really um, of great relevance now because that's it's the automatic stabilizer and yet it leads to a permanent increase in the debt levels that we have to avoid. And that's why I'm rather confident that at least in, in terms of the, the, the problem now, we shouldn't worry too much about governance issues. I'm not saying these things are not important, but given that the, the, the shoot up of the deficit is the result of these automatic stabilizers, I think we can rely on this mechanism and therefore I, 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 I think we should, we should allow um, this money to flow automatically to these governments so as to avoid a, a permanent increase in their debt levels. Thank you. So the money flows, Simeon, to uh, governments, but you're suggesting the money flows to uh, private businesses. And there's a question of accountability and uh, guarantees, aren't there? I'd like to assume a take to what Paul just said about uh, uh, governments, which I should, know, should note is not my usual take. As former finance minister, I'm generally a very stingy guy with government uh, money and would not uh, easily give it, uh, give it away. But as I mentioned, this is a different crisis from uh, the ones we've, uh, we've seen, uh, which is why I, uh, I have become a proponent for massively massive programs, very quickly dispersing money to the uh, private sectors, to the millions and tens of millions of, uh, of firms. 
it has to be transparent. So there has to be transparency, public transparency, where the money goes. So as we're putting it out, I would like to know, and many countries have that uh, already of saying, this company got this much money, this company got this much money. So everybody knows, the public can uh, check and raise, uh, raise uh, questions. And of course, there have to be some rules for uh, ownership, for example. So offshore companies, for example, with unclear uh, owners, uh, ultimate owners, I would exclude from this. So there are some rules on uh, that, simple rules that can be imposed on uh, which type of companies have, uh, can have access to this. But beyond this, um, these uh, simple rules, I'm with Paul. We need to first make sure that we don't get into a situation where after the health crisis, we don't have a private sector because a lot of otherwise very viable firms uh, uh, cannot survive this uh, extensive period, not just of the lockdown, but also the uncertainty, as Pano said, uh, is there going to be a second wave, even if there isn't, demand may be uncertain for some, uh, for some time. Now to your point, and this is my last, uh, last comment here, we have already seen in a number of countries, uh, you know, football clubs, for example, um, uh, applying for this money. In the UK, this has been a topic. In my own country, Bulgaria, they were among the first football clubs that applied and got money. And at first, as a citizen, you say, why should these rich people be getting, uh, uh, getting money? But of course, other than the 11 or 22 players uh, that probably are getting lots of um, money they're all the ground keepers and everybody else the personnel that uh, actually is not getting much money uh, in normal times and should be supported so in other words i would be uh, at this stage uh, for uh, simple quick schemes with a lot of public transparency and later on actually the tax office and uh, different agencies of the government can go back and say was this company actually using the money for this? I am sure that there is going to be some exposed uh, checking, but the time is not now. We need to act fairly quickly now. Simon, if I could just pursue that one step uh, further, this um, government aid to business, uh, you suggest should be indiscriminate. Uh, it should be both to my football club and your football club, and possibly to other parts of the economy uh, as well. But Shouldn't the crisis be seen as an opportunity for government to prioritize, to, to uh, shift resources? I think perhaps over time, once we're in the recovery phase, yes. But I think in this phase where everybody is under lockdown, businesses are not operating, uh, their workers are under severe uh, stress for losing their jobs, I think we should have uh, universal basic income. Somebody asked in the questions, am I in favor? normally knowing this crisis has suddenly become uh, more of a favor of these things we should give as much as possible quickly to firms and then start uh, in a few months six months times let's say start uh, thinking what's the new economy going to look like and which of these uh, firms and actually sectors of the economy can survive because not all sectors will survive uh, the way that uh, they are now so i'm for uh, some uh, rules for um, selection but I think a bit later on. Now we really need to make sure that everybody has a fair chance of survival. Thank you, uh, Simon. Let me now turn to these um, context of, of Greece. Uh, Miranda, you're suggesting that governments should indeed be uh, discriminating in terms of uh, future resource allocation. You've highlighted uh, 
the need, and you also wrote about this, I think, in Tanea uh, last Sunday, uh, the need uh, to cut pensions, 16% of GDP, the need for governments to uh, cut subsidies to state-owned uh, enterprises. Around the world, there are comments about uh, we are all in this together. Uh, we can come out of this crisis more united. What are the implications for jobs, poverty, social cohesion, if a Greek government was to cut pensions, as you imply, and uh, cut subsidies to state-owned enterprises? Let me perhaps clarify that um, what we call the old pensions, those before the 2016 reform that reduced the replacement ratios and cut pensions significantly, uh, the old pensioners are not that old. <laughs> Many retired relatively young from the public sector and from public sector enterprises. Uh, there was a law that was passed in 2017 in the context of the third adjustment program calling for a cut in the so-called personal difference, the difference between the actual old pension and the pension that was calculated based on the new parameters. Um, there was the law provided for a cut of up to 18% cut in the pension, uh, but this law was rescinded as soon as Greece exited uh, the third uh, memorandum. Uh, and it's a question really of intergenerational equity because uh, uh, people have made the same number of contributions uh, to the pension system over the same number of years can get pensions that are 40% different depending on whether they were, uh, they got their pension before or after the cutoff date of the 2016 reform. In addition to this intergenerational inequity, now we will uh, burden the young generation with more debt. So we need to really uh, prioritize the young generation, which is leaving the country in the thousands, looking for better remunerated jobs, better conditions outside of Greece. Uh, and it is in this context that I think we should take a fresh look at the pensions. But also, while we've been debating for three years whether the old pensions should or should not be cut, at the same time, we are uh, paying more than that per year in subsidies to ailing state enterprises with no public discussion and with no cost-benefit analysis. And I think we should also focus uh, our review on these enterprises as well which I don't believe can be profitable on current conditions. Uh, many have excess personnel uh, and poor management. So I think we should take a close look at both of these issues. If there is, uh, if, if there is to be room, not just to address the current crisis, but also to cut taxes that are very high in Greece. Uh, the top rate in Greece is 44%. But on top of that, you have a temporary tax that's not that temporary. It's been there for several years now uh, of up to 10%. Um, so you have a very progressive 
uh, income ta tax, and you have very, very high pension contributions. So young people who are working now pay very high contributions, and they will eventually get very low pensions. So this is another reason why we should take another look at the pensions. But you would accept, would you, that both of the, in both these cases, uh, adjusting the pension provision and cutting subsidies for state-owned enterprises in the medium term would increase uh, poverty and unemployment? You know, I don't, I don't agree with that. I think uh, we need to shift resources, as I said, to the younger generation. This does not create poverty, on the contrary. It alleviates poverty. And we should not uh, trap scarce resources in unproductive uses. Uh, the way to increase incomes in Greece is to increase productivity. If we have resources trapped in loss-breaking companies, that is not conducive to increasing productivity. Thanks very much. Uh, Pano, I wonder if you would like to respond to that in terms of how Greece could most effectively use whatever fiscal space it has to uh, improve its health service, improve education, other public goods. And if I may, could I couple that with a second question? Um, do you think Greece's recovery from this pandemic legacy economically is dependent on what the European Union offers in support? Uh, let me start from uh, the first thing. As I mentioned before, like most countries, the main uh, problem that we have at the moment is to avoid massive uh, bankruptcies, soaring of unemployment that is already at very high levels in Greece and so on. Therefore, all the efforts of the Greek government are in this direction. There is a problem there, and it is a difficult problem in the, in the following sense. The previous growth model that Greece was following, and this was the one that led us to disaster, it was a consumption-led growth model. Uh, there is quite a common agreement among Greek economists, at least, that we must change this productive model of the country and shift to a model where we will rely far more on exports and where investment must have a higher share in our national income. Now, the problem is that these firms that you are going to support immediately now are of the old regime. And therefore, there is a question, can you do the two things at the same time? It is very difficult, if not impossible, I would say. And uh, this is something that we will have to face in the medium term. In the very short term, I have the feeling that the first priority must be to save as many firms as possible. Let me say that several of the state guarantees that will be given to loans that will be taken for um, working capital from several firms, uh, something that uh, Simeon implied before, most of they will collapse. We will increase public debt as well. We must take this thing into account too. Second, uh, about health, as I mentioned before, uh, it it is true that in comparison to the European Union average, nowadays public health spending increases slightly below the European average. However, the main problem, I repeat, is not a problem of underfunding. There is a problem of underfunding as such. However, the main problem that we have there is organizational. There is quite a lot of inefficiency because of these things that I mentioned before. Our system is relying almost exclusively, or to a very large extent, on hospitals. 
hospitals are performing several of the functions that can be performed far more efficiently and far more cheaply by primary uh, healthcare centers, by long-term care centers, and so on. Now, regarding education, regarding education, this is one of the big uh, structural changes that we need in Greece. Greece, in the longer term, is a fast-aging country. Fast-aging country with such a high debt, if we are to survive somehow, we must have a highly productive younger generation. And not only we must have a highly productive younger generation, but this generation must stay in Greece as well. They must not migrate, as Miranda was mentioning before. There are policy implications on both uh, counts. The first count is that uh, you must support education. Education spending in Greece is substantially lower than the European average. However, even there, the main problem is not underfunding. The main problem is organization. There is no assessment. There is nothing like that in Greece. And as a result, you can see that the performance of Greek students in international comparisons like PISA and so on is really abysmal. Therefore, we have several things to do there. Even if we turn resources from other areas like pensions that uh, Miranda mentioned before towards education, um, this is not enough. As I mentioned before, we need to have all these organizational changes. And if we do all these things, is it enough? The answer is no. If we have, let's say, huge tax rates and very high social insurance contributions, even if we educate all these younger generation very well, we are living in a free world and they have a feeling that they will vote with their feet. They will simply leave the country. Therefore, I can understand that there is a problem. This is not an easy kind of situation. If you have such a mountain of debt, you must collect resources in order to bring it down. But on the other hand, I can understand that if you overdo it in this collection of resources, simply you will make the situation far worse than it, is, than it was before. Now, if I am to, correct it, to connect it with the current crisis and so on, I, let me go back to this initial proposal of Paul. Uh, I do not think, and this is a situation not only in Greece, but in several other European countries, if the worst scenario of the pandemic materializes, I really cannot see how we can escape a very deep, a very pro protracted crisis without debt monetization. And if there is an area, an, an era, where we can perform debt monetization, I have to think that this is, this is now. We are trying to... Uh, I mean, in all previous periods, we were very much worried about high inflation and so on. We are trying desperately to increase inflation for many years now. And therefore, if there is such a window of opportunity, most probably it is now. Not that I underestimate dangers of inflation down the road. However, if I am to choose between the two evils, protracted crisis of higher inflation in, down the road, I would think that I would prefer the second. Thank you very much. Uh, let me try to select some of the questions which are coming through. And uh, apologies, there are many questions coming from the audience. So let me try to uh, begin. Um, perhaps a question to begin with uh, Simeon uh, from Maximilian in Glasgow. Will various amounts of funding to businesses in different EU countries uh, create competitiveness advantage, advantages, and would that undermine the single European uh, market? I saw this question actually and also thought uh, how interesting because we are discussing and assuming, I think implicitly, that in these uh, difficult times, 
um, EU comes together and somehow there is more uh, harmony in, uh, in the difficulty. But there are a number of areas of which this is a very obvious one where you can get great inequalities across countries or actually further exacerbate uh, inequalities. So some countries, as was already mentioned by uh, Paul, um, already spending massive amounts of money on their, um, uh, on their private sector. And it may be automatic stabilizers because of uh, their more expensive uh, social systems. But it is a fact that if you compare so far at least what governments have committed uh, in crisis response, uh, the order of magnitude in, let's say, Northern Europe relative to Southern Europe is three to one. In other words, the Southern European countries, uh, at least at this moment, uh, seem to be spending about a third as a share of GDP of what uh, Northern European countries uh, have uh, committed. Uh, and this money certainly gives uh, uh, first a survival uh, opportunity or better survival opportunity to their companies, companies in Northern uh, uh, Europe uh, through this more extensive financing uh, opportunities. Uh, but also after that, possibly larger market share. And this I should notice even outside of the European Union. It's a more global question. We've seen in crisis that, uh, uh, that uh, what typically happens is uh, more concentration, more concentration in uh, different industries as the few survivors suddenly have opportunity for larger market shares. Something like that can very easily happen after this uh, uh, crisis in uh, Europe. And this is why I think we in the European Union uh, need to look for some common basis for, uh, for support. Otherwise, if it's just each country according to its means, then the Southern Europeans are already at a great disadvantage because of the large austerity uh, process that they had to go through. And now a second disadvantage will, uh, uh, will uh, appear. So somehow the private sector uh, discussion has to be foremost on uh, on the European summit. Yesterday there was some discussion, but there is no convergence uh, that uh, uh, that I can uh, uh, that I can see. Maybe a last point. There are many questions, so if I can take this, um, I think one one issue that we do need to start uh, discussing is what's the European uh, economic order, but also the global order going to look like. So one topic that a number of our questions ask is globalization, you can also ask within Europe. Uh, so I'll just point it to you, Kevin, let's discuss it later. Okay, uh, that was going to be the topic to finish with, uh, Simeon, so I'll make sure that we can come back to that. Uh, Paul, uh, there's a question from Odysseus Dick Bissanis. Uh, what, what do you see the role of credit rating agencies to be in the aftermath of this uh, crisis. And I wonder if I can combine that with a more general question, which can then come back to um, anyone else on the panel as well. It's a question from Adam Osterfield in Spain, an LSE uh, alumnus. So this could be a question for any of you. What are your best and worst scenarios for the future of Europe from a political point of view? But Paul, do you want to begin with the question about credit rating agencies and then uh, take us into the best and worst scenarios? Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, the credit rating agencies play a very special role and, and some will even say 
um, a perverse role in the sense of um, aggravating crisis. We have seen that during the sovereign debt crisis, where they typically reacted to what happened in the market, right? They were not a neutral institution identifying risk there and then deciding from their Olympus, uh, oh, now we have to lower credit ratings. No, that's not the way it worked. They, they were looking at the market and suddenly they saw that the spreads for, of Italy were increasing and then they, they scratched their head and said, uh, oh, we, did we miss something here? Let's look at Italy. Oh, yes, we should reduce, uh, we should lower the credit ratings of Italy. So that, that has been the, the mechanism that has worked during a previous crisis, which typically then has tend to exacerbate the crisis because then people look at these ratings and they say, well, this is terrible. Uh, it's, it's time to, to sell even more, right? So, so that has been a very destabilizing force. The question now is today whether they still do this. I have the impression that they have learned a bit. Like, for example, they have been hesitating to downgrade the number of countries, in particular Italy, um, I think because they are afraid to be pushed again uh, into this corner where they are criticized for exacerbating the crisis. So uh, uh, this may be just temporary, you know, I, I'm not sure this will go on like this, but it, it seems to me that they, they have learned the lesson and now are quite reluctant to jump too quickly and say, oh, look at this, Italy's debt-to-GDP ratio is exploding. It's time we downgrade that country. I think they understand that that, that probably is not a wise um, thing to do at this moment. Okay. Paul, could you take us into the wider European uh, question, which was, uh, realistically, what do you think are the best and worst scenarios coming out of this crisis for uh, the European Union? Well, uh, let, let me take the, 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 the best scenario first, right? Or maybe I should start with the worst and then end with some <laughs> optimistic thing, right? Let me take the worst scenario. Uh, this is the total failure of the European Union to set up mechanisms of solidarity. Uh, towards those countries that are hit worst, right? And it looks like that is going on. Uh, in, in, an inability to do that for all reasons, usually wrong reasons, right? Um, not understanding uh, that it's in their own self-interest uh, in many of these countries to do that. So, and this failure to set up mechanism of solidarity, either through, for example, um, common bond issues or through the central bank stepping in and monetizing uh, budget deficits, if that fails, then there the certainly will be a backlash in a number of countries that realize now, well, what's the point of being in the union if during an existential crisis, nobody's willing to help? And that could be really something very bad for the future of the union, where some countries may decide, well, let's get out of this. I mean, I'm not predicting this, right? but the political mechanism, the political dynamics is sometimes very difficult to predict and actually could lead so, some political engineers with a particular agenda to take over and push countries outside the union. That's a negative, that's a worse scenario. To Bozi, the optimistic scenario is that we managed to set up systems of solidarity, right? Uh, in, in, in some form, creating 
a perception in the South or in the countries at least that are badly hit um, that yes, it's worthwhile to be in the union. We, we get something from this, right? And then in that case, um, the union would be strengthened. Um, but I don't know how to choose between these two scenarios. Okay. Miranda, I wonder if you would uh, like to comment on the, the best and the worst scenarios. Let me first comment on the credit rating agencies. Oh, yes. They've been careful not to downgrade Italy, which is on the verge of investment grade. So a downgrade would turn Italian bonds into junk and would force some investors to sell. Um, in the case of Greece, they have not downgraded Greece, but they have changed the outlook from positive to neutral, meaning that we should not be expecting any upgrades anytime soon. But I agree with Paul that they are not eager to jump into downgrades which could deteriorate the situation in the markets uh, uh, very rapidly. On the best and worst scenario, I think the best scenario would be some kind of uh, common fund of the type that uh, France had proposed, as I mentioned in 2018, for asymmetric shocks. This is a symmetric shock, but not everyone is equally well placed to address it because some countries have a greater reliance on tourism that is very hard hit, uh, and some have very little fiscal space like Greece because of the high debt levels. Um, this may be the opportunity to have some kind of risk sharing or common insurance that could take different forms. It doesn't have to be a euro bond, uh, but I think that's the best uh, possible outcome. And the worst possible outcome is that uh, European leaders do not manage to agree or come up with proposals that are not proportional to the size of the crisis we're facing. Could I invite uh, either Pano or Simeon to add to that? In the previous crisis, sorry Panos, in the previous crisis we saw Europe, given that this was very much a European focus crisis uh, too, hesitate a lot longer than the United States or China or other large uh, economies and that cost us a lot longer recovery and a lot more pain uh, for some of uh, the countries. So to me, the worst scenario is similar to what we experienced then. Europe takes a lot of time and then comes up with a package that is too late and too little. Uh, and that has been the experience uh, so far. Uh, we can be optimistic and say Europeans have learned. Um, it's not just Europeans to learn, European politicians in Brussels have to learn. And this is a different species often. Pardon? Uh, let me just uh, take a step back and uh, answer the, in the following way. The European project has been a hugely successful project, if we look from the beginning of it. It has delivered peace, it has delivered democracy, and until recently it was delivering prosperity as well. We created the Eurozone. The Euro was supposed to be the jewel of the crown of European integration. However, it was a monetary union where, without fiscal union. We knew that at some time we have to move in this direction all successful monetary unions that we have on earth at some time became fiscal unions as well. Actually, normally it is fiscal union first and monetary union later. If we look at the history of the European Union, always the fast moves were taken in periods of crisis. This was something that we experienced in the last crisis as well. 
all countries are doing their own uh, cost-benefit analysis as to whether it is good for them to participate in the next step and under what circumstances and so on. Many people say that people, uh, you know, the North will not participate any further because the cost will be huge and so on. I think this analysis is incorrect. The North, the countries we schematically call the North, are countries that are relying quite extensively on export-led growth. If there is a breakup of the Eurozone, and this is the worst-case scenario, of course, there is the even worse that the European Union breaks up. If there is a breakup of uh, the Eurozone and we have a return in national currencies, the currency of these countries will be in stratospheric levels. Crisis will be something that will be experienced in these countries, and a very severe crisis for that matter. On the other hand, there may be moves, for instance, there were uh, threats like that from Italy uh, recently, implicit or explicit, where at sometimes these countries may say, hold on a second, we are losing through brain drain our labor. We are losing our capital as well. What is the benefit of staying in this situation? Therefore, the win-win situation is somehow a further European integration, further economic integration, and this is in the direction of common fiscal policy. However, there is something that is not discussed in the South. People believe, for instance, that we have debt mutualization and everybody will be happy. I think that the North is absolutely right in requesting, in exchange for debt mutualization, fiscal integration and so on, some kind of a common economic governance. And common economic governance implies some loss of sovereignty over fiscal policy and so on. I may like it very much. However, very few politicians in the South uh, tend to emphasize this aspect of further economic integration. Okay, thank you. We are going to run out of time. There's been um, a number of questions which I'd like to bundle together, and they come back to uh, the theme that Simeon was uh, raising a moment ago about the international uh, dimension. Uh, a very distinguished alumna of the LSE, Sophie Vaskalaki Mitteleneu, asks about uh, the essentially whether you think Europe in the past was uh, too soft on China with the effects of uh, damaging its own uh, capacity to produce uh, key manufactured uh, goods, uh, e.g. in the medical uh, sector and in other sectors, and that now we're paying the, the price. I wonder, to finish, to quickly go to each of you, uh, if I could link that with a more general aspect. Uh, do you think Europe will come out of this crisis worse off than the United States and, and China? Paul, do you want to begin with that? Um, well, as you know, forecasting is difficult, especially if you want to forecast the future. Huh? Um, it, it's very difficult to say. Uh, I think uh, it, it very much depends also on, on how these countries manage to um, to solve this pandemic, right? And when I, when I look around now, I see in the US and UK, for example, um, the way this is dealt with um, doesn't make me optimistic about these countries and in a way more optimistic about Europe. <clears throat> it looks like uh, in Europe up, up to now, <clears throat> things can change again. Uh, we have managed this better. And, and since the the economy today depends on this pandemic, right? 
that, that will be the key element, uh, the pandemic. How do we um, control this pandemic? That will determine the economic outlook. Um, I, I might even say okay. that the Europe will do better than the US. Okay. It's rather like the discussion as to the uh, impact of the French Revolution and the response to say that it's too early to tell at this stage. Uh, Pana, would you like to uh, respond to this point about uh, Europe vis vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the US and China? Yes. Very quickly, uh, normal times require normal policies. Extraordinary times require extraordinary policies. Therefore, in normal times, I have the feeling that one of the oldest postulates in economics, the oldest uh, so-called theory of comparative advantage, is a very valid theory. And I do not agree with this uh, voice that say that, oh, no, we must produce uh, medical equipment plus medicines plus masks plus everything and so on. The road to autarky is a road to nowhere. However, uh, I noticed that one of the questions that uh, were there, not the one by... Uh, Mrs. Daskalaki until now. It was about uh, as to whether China can be considered the white knight for Greek firms and so for uh, European firms uh, and so on now. I disagree with this. Under these exceptional circumstances that are now, I have the feeling that we have a duty to protect our firms. However, this protection must not go on forever. Okay. Miranda. I, I agree with what uh, Panos and Paul said, and I would add as a footnote, though, that credit markets in the U.S. are more resilient than they are in Europe because the Fed is buying up all kinds of junk-rated, high-yield corporate bonds, whereas the ECB sticks to investment-grade corporate bonds. And so if you look at origination, who has issued debt, uh, in, in the U.S., the market is still booming, and in Europe, hardly anything is being issued. So that will make it harder for Europe's either fallen angels, companies that have been downgraded recently, or those that were not up to it before, to compete and to stay in business. Simeon, can you wrap this up for us? I think that uh, is still early to forecast some things, but one thing that I'm uh, fairly certain will come out of this uh, crisis is a decoupling between the United States and China's economies and decoupling between the European and China's economies. Some of that, the US, uh, China especially, uh, sentiment, let's say, was already happening even before this crisis, before uh, COVID-19, and now with, uh, uh, with the dynamics around this uh, crisis, there's clearly going to be a lot uh, less of Chinese uh, goods coming towards the US, and I would uh, imagine a lot less uh, Chinese uh, uh, products coming to Europe. The question then is, and that would benefit Europe, at least uh, in the way that Fano was mentioning. The question then is, where in Europe? Is this all going to be made in Germany? Because they have the uh, fiscal space to support their companies now and because they are less affected? Or is there a European mechanism to ensure that, uh, that the benefits of possible benefits of this are more spread? That we don't know yet. Well, uh, we have indeed uh, covered many different aspects, both global, European, and indeed uh, Greek. Uh, I can see that there are literally hundreds of questions that I could have uh, chosen, and I apologize if I wasn't able to pick up your particular uh, question. 
but I hope you'll agree that we've covered uh, quite a range and in a very expert and authoritative uh, fashion with clarity from each of our uh, speakers. So let me thank each of our speakers very much indeed for your participation and your erudition. And let me uh, thank again uh, our collaboration between the LSE's Hellenic Observatory and the National Bank of Greece. Uh, if you have an appetite to discuss uh, the impact of COVID-19 yet more, then you can see from the LSE website that there is indeed a series of uh, these kinds of discussions uh, on COVID-19 organized by the School of Public Policy here at the LSE. But for now, wherever you are, and thank you for your contributions, thank you. Goodbye.